Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I want to say a sentence about Pardes and what we do. So Pardes is a non-denominational co-ed Jewish learning institution whose goal is to open the doors of classic Jewish text as wide as possible to allow any Jew who wants to to come in and learn. Um, we happen to have a couple of relatives of Pardes faculty in the audience, so that's pretty fun and exciting. It doesn't even happen that often. The relatives are here, so that's fun. Um, and. Uh, it, we have lots of really wonderful programs. We have an executive learning seminar over July 4th weekend of this year, actually, it's the last week of June, and which is phenomenal and a five-day experience. And we have a summer program for three weeks in July and two weeks in August, um, a year program, a semester program, an educator's program, an informal educator's program. Basically, if you want to come learn in Jerusalem, we have a program for you. I'm very happy to talk to you more about that. But also, one other thing I want to bring to your attention is that we have um, really incredible podcasts Although I know VBM has incredible podcasts too. But Pardes also has some really incredible podcasts on lots of different topics. Parsha, the holidays, um, major burning issues in the Jewish community, um, and some really great learning. So please, those are all free and we're number two, I'm very proud of this fact, we're number two on the iTunes Judaism section. Which is pretty impressive, I think. Um, so check us out on iTunes. Uh, we also have a website called elmad, E-L-M-A-D dot org. Um, so lots of great, free, wonderful Torah on there. Okay, so um, as Rabbi Anklowitz mentioned, my job is basically to do this wonderful thing of getting to fly around North America and meet new and old friends and, um, and get to learn with people. And I get to really um, encounter, I feel like I really have a good sense of the American Jewish community because I'm in a different city every other day. Tomorrow I'm going to Seattle. Um, so, um, and it's, it's been really interesting to me to be on the road. I'm on the road about 120 days a year, and I love it. And <laughs> it sounds crazy, but it's great. Um, and um, it's really changed me, though. It's, this is my third year in this position. And it's really taught me so much about everything. <laughs> so I wanted to do this session with you because what's interesting to me, my friends, is that some of the most fundamentally important stories in the Babylonian Talmud, and in general in the Talmud, happen while rabbis are on the road. So-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so were walking on their way. Or so-and-so had this encounter with this person. Or so-and-so met this person. And there's all these incredible moments about the path, about the way. You know, in Judaism we talk a lot about being on the derech, or being on the path, or life as a journey. We always talk about this, you know, and, and staying on the right path, and choosing the right path. It's, it's really the idea of travel is just hugely important. 
the idea of journeying is hugely important. And some of the most important moments in Jewish history uh, happen on the road. You know, I would say, right, Avraham Avinu from our first, uh, from our first patriarch, right? We have this, we have this moment of lech lecha, of get up and move, walk. Something is going to happen to you when you choose to embark on a journey. So uh, I've been thinking about it tremendously as I do this, as I lech lecha basically every other day. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Why do I have to go on a journey? Why do I have to do this in order to change, grow, and develop? Do you have any thoughts on that? Just, just to poll the audience before we even look at the text. Any thoughts? Yeah. I'm thinking about the wandering Jew. I mean, right. we have always been wandering right. Jews. Absolutely. And, and, and that is where we get a, a great deal of our education from. So you are learning from the different communities. Right. So why is that? Why is it? Why are we wandering? What, what do you think we learn from the road? Sorry, we don't have a choice. Okay, great, good. So it's not ideal. It's just situational. It's not, an, it's not an ideal necessarily. Which I think is, by the way, an interesting difference, right? Is it something positive that we choose, or just happen to be what happened for the Jewish people? Right. So okay, good. Yeah. You learn that things are not what you imagine. Okay, great, great. Tell me your name. Pardon? What's your name? Oh. Alan. Another Alan. Another Alan. I'm Judy. Judy, right. Okay, Judy, Alan, and? Annette. Annette. Yes, Rabbi Yankowitz. I wonder if when you stay put, there's more of a materialistic tendency, because you're like obsessed with your stuff. Mm. I'm like looking mm. over my beautiful, stuff. Beautiful, beautiful. But when I go beautiful. out, I have a little more spiritual orientation, because I leave my stuff right. to kind of like look at the world and experience right. the Beautiful, stuff. beautiful. I think it's such an interesting point. What are the things when I'm home that keep me grounded in such a great way, and also keep me stuck? and keep me limited, right? So when I'm on the road, I only have little travel size things of everything. I only have right, two pairs of socks. I don't have 37 pairs of socks. And which one should I wear today? And I don't know what mood am I in, Argyle, right? It's a different life, right? It's, a, it's just a different, it's a different life when I'm not sort of um, weighted down with things. And I think it's such an, on the other hand, on the other hand, what's important to note is that sometimes those things, those Argyle socks actually make me feel home and make me feel secure and safe. And so that, that's a really interesting um, dynamic. Okay, so I, I love to start this, this class <laughs> with this incredible piece by Gloria Steinem. Don't look at your pages yet, because I have to give you the background of this, okay? So Gloria Steinem um, recently turned 70 and wrote a book called My Life on the Road. And so when I was, <laughs> one of my students actually said to me, Yafa, you have to read this book because you're, you live on the road. Gloria Steinem didn't spend more than two weeks at a time in the same place her whole life. She writes and that's her opening, which is right, crazy, amazing, interesting. And she loves the road and she talks the whole book about her life on the road. And her opening, it's just amazing, her opening uh, piece is about this moment. I don't know if anyone, I don't know if, I'm very curious actually, I'm sure there are people here who know this, um, that there is every August a conference of Hell's Angels in North Dakota. People know this? Yes, so some of you know this. We, my family, we actually drove across country in the August, and we actually met many of these Hells Angels. So so did Gloria Steinem. She describes how she was flying into North Dakota to do a, to do a sort of awareness-raising session. And she lands there, and they're like going, and every motel and every hotel and every bed and breakfast is booked up with these Hells Angels. And she's like, oh my god, where did I fly into? She's very nervous. She describes her nervousness and her interesting bias against these hell's angels and how nervous she is. Like, if they find out who I am, I'm gonna be in trouble. I'm like, she's like very wary. And one day she's sitting in a diner with her friend who she is, her co, um, 
revolutionary. And she's sitting at a diner with her, and this woman walks up to her, this biker woman walks up to her, and Gloria Steinem is like really nervous. She's like, oh God, here it goes. I'm gonna get up with a head. And she says to her, are you Gloria Steinem? And she says, yes, I am Gloria Steinem. And she goes, oh my God, my husband and I love Ms. Magazine. We're your biggest fans. We're so excited to meet you. Thank you for all the work that you do. <laughs> Which is just amazing, okay? Like it's just an amazing thing to think about. Like, a, a biker woman like loving Ms. Magazine, right? And about the prejudice that we have when we meet people who are different than us. And then this is, listen to this guys, because this is the best part of the book, okay? Before she leaves, now you can look down, my new friend tells me to look out of the big picture window at the parking lot. See that purple Harley out there? That big gorgeous one? I, that's mine. I used to ride behind my husband and never took the road on my own. Then, after the kids were grown, I put my foot down. It was hard, but we finally got to be partners. Now he says it likes it, he likes it better this way. He doesn't have to worry about his bike breaking down or getting a heart attack and totaling us both. I even put Ms. on my license plate. And you should see my grandkids' faces when Grandma rides up on her purple Harley. Okay, so I don't know if this gives me goosebumps every time I read this. Like, it's so beautiful and perfect and amazing very powerful piece about how we judge people when we don't know them. But then she says this, on my own again, I look out at the barren sand and tortured rocks of the Badlands, stretching for miles. I walk there and I know that close up, the barren sand reveals layers of pale rose and beige and cream, and the rocks, rocks turn out to have intricate womb-like openings. Even in the distant cliffs, caves of rescue appear. What seems to be one thing from a distance is very different close up. I tell you this story because it's the kind of lesson that can be learned only on the road, and also because I've come to believe that inside, each one of us has a purple motorcycle. We only have to discover it and ride. Beautiful, right? Very beautiful piece here. But she says some things I think are so, so interesting. I hope we're gonna make, draw some parallels to the Talmudic piece that we're about to learn. So what, just a few sentences. What do you guys think? Reactions, responses to this? What do you think about her idea that this is a story that can only happen to us on the road? What do you think about that? Yeah. Alan. We have vestas. <laughs> Are they purple? That's the real question. No. They're different colors. Okay. They're different colors. Okay. Nice. Nice. So what, what do you think she means that this is something that can only happen on the road? Yeah. When you're in your own surroundings, you take things for granted mm -hmm. and you have expectations that some are met, some aren't. But when you're on the road, it's all new. Right. And, and there are differences that you have to... Um, accept or reject. Right, so right. It's, it's, it's wider, it's mm, broader. It's, beautiful. It's more beneficial to the soul. Right, right. There's, there's things you have to, there's a, there's a newness, there's a freshness. I'm very unsure. I think I'm unsure of my steps, right? I don't know. And by the way, when I'm unsure of my steps, what I think is interesting what she's saying to us is, when I'm unsure of my steps, sometimes that actually causes me to do what? What does she do at first? Yeah, hold back, retreats, excellent, right? Retreat, hold back, build up walls. Because I don't know, actually, sometimes I just, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go back to my like, gut instinct and decide that you're actually dangerous. So there's a way in which the road can open us up to new experiences, to ask questions, and there's a way in which it can sh shut us down, yeah, and really cause us to like clamp, because I don't know. 
uh, I don't know what to do. And I just, I want to just like, this is what I know. And you know, I'm, I'm not going to, right? I ordered this coffee in St. Louis. I ordered this coffee in Cincinnati. I ordered this coffee, coffee in Phoenix. I ordered it in New York. And like, that's what I know. And I, right, the things that, because this is what I know and it keeps me feeling safe and, and more down in a way, right? So we're, we're going to explore this for the top. Yeah. Just tell me your name. Sorry. The road, Matthew. Matthew. The road is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a difference between driving the interstate yeah. and stopping at Beautiful. Johnson's or whatever. They Beautiful. All the same. You don't know what city you're in because the menu is the same. And being on the road and exploring and being forced. Yes, sir. Beautiful. And there's a big change. Yeah. People yeah. don't drive see anymore. Yeah. It's beautiful. Quickly yeah. As opposed to taking the back road. Right, right. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Exposing yourself to others, to newness, to, to actually being curious, right? Beautiful. So in other words, it, and that, that has a lot to do with my orientation as I travel. Am I trying to, do I need this? No. Right? I don't. I'm so loud, right? That's what I think. Okay. If, if you find that you do need it, you'll let me know, but I'm just so loud that I, I'm a human megaphone. Okay. So in the Talmud, there was a whole job that was just being a human megaphone. I, I would have had that job. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so... <laughs> So, so I think it's such a good point that Matthew's saying to us, right, that how, is my, is, am I trying to get there? Is it about the destination or is it about the road and having the experience of exploring open myself up, right? Right, beautiful. Very, very nice point. There was another hand here. Yeah. Tell me your name, though. The one thing we haven't mentioned, I, I work, my name is Diana. Diana. And I worked on the road every other week for mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And I was in Europe and United States and Canada and whatever. What I got out of it... Um, Travel part, yeah, that airline really kind of sucks. <laughs> but the, uh, when you're there, the people yeah. want you to see mm -hmm. cities. Yes, they so true. So true, it's so true. It's true. Uh, it, that part yeah. is, and I think in olden times, they were meeting people along the way and learning from them. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's a real... Right. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, so true. People want you to love their city or their, their place. It's really a real thing. I want you to, yeah, it's really, that's really true. It's a really great, excellent, excellent point. I was in a city and I hadn't seen snow because I lived in Arizona and I'm in Canada and I'm starting to lead a group and I look out the window and it's snowing. And I got so excited, I said, coffee break. And I went right downstairs and I was right downstairs. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. There's such a difference in, in so many things, and yeah. the weather is one yeah. of them. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. There's, and it's true. There are all these subtle differences that are real. Someone asked me, like, when you come into a city for a day and you teach two sessions, can you really tell? And sometimes the answer is absolutely. You can tell, right, a place by the people, by how people treat each other. It's very, it's very fascinating. Yeah, you wanted to say something? Okay. Yeah. And they would always go to a synagogue. Uh huh. Yeah. China, Hong yeah. Kong, yeah. Shabbat. Yeah. And that was their way yeah. to meet local people. Yeah. And he told the story that they looked at him like, you don't look Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Beautiful. Beautiful. Very interesting. 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 My parents actually used to live in Hong Kong. 
So my parents actually used to live in Hong Kong. So there you go. But yeah, it's really interesting. And I remember the first time I went down to Chile to my parents used to live there. And they were reading the same Torah portion. And I was like, this is so cool. You know, like, how can this be? That like everywhere in the world, right, is reading the same Torah portion. Really interesting how to connect that way. Rabbi Yanklos, you want to say something? I wonder when, he, when she writes, I used to ride behind my husband and never took the road on my own. Yeah. Partially that's about marriage, but I think it could also be understood as local. That in the in 1960s, we learned from psychologists the power of group dynamics. Mm -hmm. And locally, we are mm -hmm. deeply influenced by group dynamics. Right, right, when right. When you step out of that, that construction, yeah, yeah. You, 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 you become someone different. Right. So it's, a, so it's a great way in which the road either asks us to encounter what's different asks us to have other experiences, and also makes us vulnerable. And I think that that's, th this is the tension that we're about to see. So my friends, we're about to see this, this really interesting moment wherein one rabbi talks about his experiences, three different experiences he has on the road. But before that, I want to do, I'm going to do, do two sentences of background. Can I do that? Really quick, and then I promise we're going to get to the stories, OK? So stories number one on your pages is a Mishnah from the Tractate of Eruvin, OK? And Eruvin, Eruvin is all about drawing boundaries. What is public space? What is private space? That's actually the whole Tractate. What do we consider public? What do we consider private, OK? Which, when you talk about travel and the road, it's a huge question. Where do I draw my own boundaries? This is my place now. This is my room. This is my town. This is my right, country. This is how do I feel at home? So huge question. So in that conversation, my friends, they're talking about how to decide what the limits of a city are. Okay? Because on Shabbat, there's an idea that I don't want to leave the city. And this is going to get a little technical, but stay with me, okay? I promise I'm going to try to make it as, as, as intelligible as possible. I don't want you to leave this, the boundaries of your city more than 2,000 cubits in every direction. Okay, so I build, I build a circumference around the city to, of 2,000 cubits. But the question on the table is, well, where does my city end? What are the city limits? Okay, that's the question. So look what happens, guys. We're here in source number one. How do they make extensions for cities for the purpose of defining the Shabbat limit? Okay, if one recedes, another projects, or if one turret of the wall recedes, another projects, or if there were ruins 10 handbreadths high, or bridges or sepulchral monuments that contain dwelling places, they extend the boundary of the town to include them. And they make it like a square tablet in order that the use of the corners might be gained. Okay, the point is there. You take the farthest tip of a city, wherever you have any structure, you go out at a 90 degree angle and you make a square from there. Okay, and then around that square you make a circle. Okay? But what's interesting and important to understand, my friends, is this is a moment wherein we are trying to do what with the boundaries of the city? Expand them or contract them? Expand. Right? So notice that we're actually trying to make the city bigger. Why? Why do I want to make the city bigger? Good. Right? Who lives on the outskirts of my city? That's right. I think people who can't afford to live on the in inside of the city. So this mission is actually really about inclusion and exclusion. When I talk about where I make the boundaries right, of a city in order to, by the way, it also means that the people on the inside of the city can walk to the people on the outside of the city and they'll still be considered within the city. right? So there's a way not only of including those on the outside and saying you're part of us, but also enabling us to be able to walk to each other and be in communi community with each other and not start the boundaries of where we can't walk within your town, right? In other words, I want 
I go as far as I possibly can out. Wherever I have any jutting out structure, that's considered part of my sikh, right? So there's a way in which the rabbis here are saying, even those on the outskirts and on the boundaries are part of my community, okay? <laughs> which I think is quite beautiful and very powerful. And in fact, and if we had another seven hours or maybe 20 days, we could spend time doing the next five pages of this, of this uh, not five, the next, sorry, four and a half pages here are about, are about, um, it's actually fascinating. We go into this whole conversation of insiders and outsiders, particularly about education. Who do we consider part of our educational project, which is fascinating and what does language mean and what is speech and who's an insider who's an outsider really interesting in the midst of this my friends in the midst of this comes these stories okay so we are in source number four on your pages i want to do something a little bit chutzpahdik can i do it rabbi Inklitz? can i be a little bit chutzpahdik okay okay i'm going to be a little bit chutzpahdik my friends and i'm going to ask you to do a little chavruta a little chavruta learning what is Chavruta learning? Group, paired, partnered learning, okay? I'm gonna ask you to turn to the person next to you. One of you is gonna, we're just doing source four, just doing source four, and it's only gonna be for five minutes, okay? Five minutes on source four. But I want you to see it for yourselves first before you hear my voice, okay? So uh, you're gonna turn to the person next to you. One of you is gonna read it out loud, and there are questions on the bottom of source number four, okay, that I want you to think about and I want you to look at. And um, so source number four, for five minutes, one person reads out loud and there are questions on the bottom. I will be here if you need me, if anything is unclear, and it should be unclear, they're not the simplest of stories. So if you get stuck, that's okay. We're trying to get through all of source four, five minutes, I'm here if you need me, okay? Go forth, do it, you can do it, my friends. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Okay, my friends, I'm going to call us back together. I do want to reiterate, you should feel free to keep eating and drinking. Very important. More important. The most important. Okay. All right, friends, I'm Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya. With me, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya says, now I want to say something about who this person is. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya is like one of the most important rabbis in the entire Mishnah, okay? He is, he's also known as just Rabbi Yoshua. Very, very important rabbi. Uh, you know, his main sparring partner is Gamliel, who was the head of the community. Extremely important man, okay? And one morning, this is probably he lives around the year 80, but although the truth is, he, they, they believe that he was actually already in the temple. Oh, yes, yes. Mishnah, Mishnah time period. Okay, so we're talking, he, he, they believe, the rabbis believe that he lived during the time period of the temple. So probably 50, 50 CE to 100 and something CE. Okay? So, Rabbi Yushu ben Hananya, okay? He walks into the Beit Midrash one day. I'm adding, I'm editorializing a little. But he walks in and he says to his students, Mi amai, in all my days, Adam, no one has ever beaten me, except for, no, and by the way, he says, no man has ever meet, beaten me except for a woman, which is perhaps the greatest line in the Talmud. No man has ever beaten me except for a woman, right? Except for a wo no one has ever bested me except for a woman, a little boy, and a little girl. Tinok for tinoket, okay? 
a woman, right? These are the three people who have bested me. Now, what do you, how did you understand bested? What does that mean? Bested me, nitzchuni. What? Got the better of me, excellent, yeah? Yeah, caught him out. Caught him out, excellent, okay. Now, what does this man do for a living? He's a teacher, right? He's a, he's a rabbi, he's a scholar, okay? What he's basically saying is, I have had hundreds, if not thousands of Talmudic Torah arguments in my life. And every single one of those I have won. That's right. None of you will ever best me in my brains, right? And in my Talmudic Torah knowledge, right? That's what he's basically saying to the baby Midrash, no, right? No, he's not saying that. Exactly. Very interesting, right? Because on the one hand, this man is extraordinarily, this is being um, recorded, so I gotta be careful a little bit. It seems to be that this man seems to be, right, quite arrogant or sure of himself. And yet, Gerald, yes, Gerald says to us, but this is a real moment of humility, okay? The question I have is when does he become humbled? At what point in this story does he become humbled? But I think what's interesting to me is even as he's about to tell you that he was bested by a woman, he is still saying to his students, but none of you are going to beat me. Don't think you can do this. Okay. Now, this, there's a big clue here by this word mitzchuni, okay, bested me, because actually it only appears one other place in the Talmud, this language of mitzachon, that one person bests another, and it actually is in the very, very famous story about the oven of Achnai, Tanuroshel Achnai, which is about a rabbinic dispute uh, of, of one minority opinion versus the majority opinion, okay? And there, right, the minority opinion is correct. In fact, even God confirms through a series of miracles that the minority opinion is correct. And the majority opinion says, thanks for playing, but actually, loba shamayimhi, the Torah is not in the heavens, and we go by the majority, God. The majority of the rabbis say, we go by the majority, thanks for playing, God, okay? Which is pretty... Unbelievable. And the Talmud describes God as laughing in the heavens and saying, ah, nitzchuni banai, nitzchuni banai. My children have overcome me, have bested me. My children have overcome me, have bested me. Okay, it's a, it's a real story of success for the rabbis and that God is super proud of his children in that they created a legal system which basically could say to God, sorry, we actually go after the rabbis, the majority of rabbis, not you, not miracles. Okay, so it's a fascinating thing to notice that this character of Yeshua who is living in that same time period as that story is being told is saying to us, I was never bested. Even though God was bested, I was never bested. No one has ever bested me except for a woman, a little boy, and a little girl. So tremendous confidence mixed with, as Gerald says to us, tremendous humility. Okay, so that's what we're sort of, we're walking into the stories with that. I love that that's how he opens. Okay, and by the way, he's not embarrassed to tell his students, which I always think is important here. Like he has certainly had a transformative experience on the road, and he walks into the Midrash and he tells them, guys, look what I learned from my travels. Look what I learned on the road, okay? And he walks, and so he, this is what he says. Isha Maihi, what was the incident with the woman? I was once staying at an inn where the hostess served me with beans. Okay, not so unusual. On the first day, I, I ate them all. On the second day, I ate them all. Everything's good, right? You can, there's a little bit of a Goldilocks theme here. The first one, I ate them all. The second day, I ate them all. The third day, what happened? On the third day, she put too much salt, and as soon as I tasted them, I 
oh gosh, this is not for me. Okay, right. And she says, oh, Rabbi, huh. <laughs> why, don't you eat the, why aren't you eating? And he says, oh, oh, it's because I, um, I had a really big breakfast. <laughs> That's what he's saying to her. That's okay, I had a really big breakfast, right? And she says, oh, really, a big breakfast? Well, it looks like you ate all of the bread. It's such a big breakfast, why do you eat all the bread? Right, okay, <laughs> so she then says to him, oh, is it possible that you left in the dish today, right, the dish today as compensation for the former meals? After all, did not the sages say, nothing must be left in the serving pot, but something must be left on your personal plate. Now, what's important to understand here is this is not a great translation, and I take responsibility for that, but as a compensation for the former meals is not really the right translation. Lo hinachta pe'ah barishonim, right? Is it because you didn't leave over pe'ah? What is pe'ah, you know? A corner, a corner of your field. And why do I leave it over? For the cleanings for the poor people. So she's basically saying, oh, I know why you're leaving over the food right now. You're leaving over the food right now because... You didn't do so before. Oh, I know why you're leaving me a whole plate of food. Because after all, don't the rabbis say, you don't leave any food in the serving pot, you leave it all on your personal plate. Huh? Okay, what's happening here? Help me understand. How do you understand what's going on in this story? You're saying you've forgotten an important element of the process of consuming your meal. Yes, but she's doing it in a nice way so that she, he understands that he's not being made to feel it. Okay, so it's a great question how you read this. Some of you have already said that she does this in a very nice way. I am very, I am very curious what the tone of her voice is here, right? Like, oh, now you want to leave over? Some, oh, you're leaving over some food for me now that it's not delicious, yummy food that I made for you? Now that it's terribly, ter oh, now you're going to leave it over for me? Now, what she, let's just understand the shot, the simple understanding of this text. What does it mean, you didn't, I didn't leave any over in the serving pot, but you should leave over on your personal plate? What are we talking, what's the, what are you understanding from this? Good, absolutely tzedakah. Sorry? Leaving it for the So what's interesting, what's happening here, and by the way, this is only found one other place in the Talmud also, is that there seems to be a custom that when you are the hostess or the server, you take all the food you have and you do what? You put it to the guests. You give it to the guests. You, the server, give the entire pot to your guest, and the guest is supposed to know to do what? Leave some for you. Now, it could be that Yoshua knows this, but do you think Yoshua knows this? Well, should he? Yeah, it might not be his custom. I actually think he doesn't know, right? I actually would suggest he didn't just eat them all because he's, there's bread on the table, it's fine. I think possibly Yoshua does not know this, right? Because I, I don't really believe that Yoshua, if he knew the law or knew the custom, that he would really not follow it. I don't think that that's what we're learning here. I think what we're learning here is he doesn't know this. And only the third day, when he doesn't eat the food, she says, oh, interesting, now you're leaving over the food. Which, by the way, I want to ask you, do you think she salted on purpose or not on purpose? Does anybody think she's just a bad cook? No. How did she get it right the first two days? <laughs> How did she get it right the first two days? But you're saying? She doesn't want to. So she, she basically has a chance. Does anybody think there's a problematic in her behavior there? Yeah, definitely not very direct, although we've heard why not being direct might actually be more effective, okay? So what's the critique of Yoshua here? What's the critique? That he didn't leave it over? He didn't know the customs. He didn't know the customs. 
engaged. He didn't know what was going on. He saw but didn't see. Good, right? So much, so much in that, right? He doesn't know the custom. And what, what, what Matthew is saying to us is there's a real responsibility here on the part of whom? The guest. To learn, you, you don't go to another place. Sorry. He needs to read his folders, you know. Exactly. He needs to read his folders. When you go to another place, you figure out, do I have to tip? How much is typical to tip? We've all, we've all seen these questions. People write, listen, hey, I'm about to go to another country. What do I tip? Do I do this? What's considered rude? What's considered polite? What questions do I ask? It's very fascinating to notice. Now, you could just say that he was just selfish and he ate all the food because he didn't think about her. You could say. But I think there's something more subtle happening here, which is specifically why we tell you the story about the road, right? That actually, when you are a guest in someone's home or in a new city, you have a responsibility to think about what are the customs of this place, okay? And he doesn't do that, which I think is very fascinating, right? The way he was vested was that she found a way to teach him even when he wasn't asking. Okay, great, great. In other words, she's saying to him. Ah, very interesting. Very, very interesting, right? That she was an excellent, the best thing was in the teaching. That's very, very nice. A very beautiful point. I love that. So I think there's something very, very interesting here. And again, I, th I think this is a lesson you can only learn on the road, right? That level of humility, right? But Matthew said something else here, which I think is very interesting, which is that he didn't see which I think is interesting. In other words, there's a re part of what's happening here is that the people that he is encountering are fundamentally, who are they? Unnoticeable, other, right? To no I think it's interesting to notice that it's a woman, right? A little boy, a little girl, people who are not classically inside of the Beit Midrash, which I think is interesting. In other words, that sometimes I have to leave my home bait me drash and venture out into the world in order to meet people who I really would not meet. Although I think it's interesting to think about, does, were there women in his life all the time that he didn't notice or see? Right? And how, when I leave home and I am bested by someone teaching me to see, how does that open my eyes back home? I wonder if he, like, afterwards, like all of the people that he, all of the women that he encountered, was he like, hey, I wonder if she has something to teach me. Right? I wonder about that. I, I wonder, I really think it's an interesting thing for him to think, for, to think about in this, right? That he's so willing to say to his students, I want you to know who I can learn from. Who can I learn from? Everyone. Everyone. That's right. That's part of what's happening here is the lesson that he's learning is, no one bested me because I actually wasn't willing to learn from everyone. So of course no one bested me. I wasn't in a space of openness and learning, and I wonder if this is a moment for him where that's what happens for him, right? Where he shifts his understanding of who he can learn from. Okay, so that's story number one. Okay, story number two comes along. What was the incident with this? I think is much more complicated and maybe even more painful. What was the incident with the little girl, okay? Once I was walking on my way. So the first one, I was staying at an inn. I was a guest in someone else's inn, okay? The second one, I'm walking on the way, on a journey. And there was a path across a field, and I made my way through it. A little girl says to me, Ravi, is that not the part of the field? No, I say, it's a trodden path. Yeah, you know why, she says? Robbers like yourself have trodden it down, period. That's the whole story, four little lines. Yeah, because robbers like you, they, they made it into a private, from a private space into a 
public space. That's part of why we're in this tract of urban public, private, right? You're watching it happen here. So tell me, my friends, I want you to tell me about this. This little girl says to this rabbi, by the way, does he talk to her? No. She says to him, you are trespassing. Hello, rabbi, you're trespassing, right? And he says to her, no, I'm not. This is a public road. I'm walking down a public road. Yeah, you know what made it public? People trampled on it. The end. Okay, so tell me, help me. How do you understand? What's happening here? Well, she was a little disrespectful to the rabbi. A lot disrespectful. Let's call it out. <laughs> Extremely critical of this rabbi. Okay, good. She was telling this rabbi, you should have come that's right. Who are you? And by the way, she says to him, isn't that a private property? If I were the visitor, I'd say, oh, it is? I'm so sorry. And what does he say? No. How do you know? <laughs> How do you know better? Yeah. Right? Again, this is a real moment here, a real moment of critique. And that's why the Talmud is so wonderful, because it's not afraid to critique the rabbis. Right? It's really wonderful. A real, and he's not afraid to tell his own critique to his students. Right? This is all still in the first person. Right? So, so he says, yeah, you know what she said to me? Robbie, you're trespassing. And I say, no, I'm not. What am I going on? Based on what information am I going on? None, okay? But what am I relying on? Well, the fact that it's already gone. Good, and how do I know that? My sight, good. I'm relying on my sight. My own understanding of a situation. Right? That's what I'm relying on, which, by the way, when I'm a guest or when I'm on the road, do I necessarily know what I'm seeing? I think part of what's happening here is you see situations as they are, and you therefore deduce, based on your knowledge, what you think. But actually, you don't know what these symbols mean. You think you do based on your own sight and your own brain. But actually, part of what's happening in this text is when you are in an unfamiliar place, you actually have to ask. Is this public or private? And if someone comes to tell you that you're trespassing, what should your response be? Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I thought I understood. I, let me, tell me about it. What happened? Whose land is it? No. Yeah, I know what's happening. <laughs> what? Why do you think that? Right? And then she says, yeah. You know what you're doing effectively by not asking the question? You're simply stealing. You are participating in... Now, it's not true, actually, because really he's right halachically in a way. I see the path. It's trodden. It's, you can't claim this is private property anymore. But what she's saying to him is, by you continuing this behavior, what's happening? What are you doing? That's right. Two wrongs don't make a right. Right, exactly. Yeah, a little girl. Another lesson in humility. Another lesson in humility. Good. Yeah, and that what you're gonna say? Well, it's strange. Say more. For a little girl to be addressing the rabbi that way. No. Yeah. Number two, deciding whatever the what it's supposed to be and what is right and what is wrong. Right. It just is strange. Unless that goes in my Right, it might be her land. I think that is a very interesting question. Maybe it's her, right, it's, I mean, exactly, it's right. Their, their land, right, right. She might know the status of this land better than him, right? And she's basically saying, you know what's happened to my family? People have walked through this all the time. Yeah, my, my, our, our family plot has become a shortcut now. And you think you, you think you know? Why do you think you know? Ask a question.
Okay, so I, I think that there's something happening here. But I also think there's something, there is absolutely, we, we can't really deny the gender power dynamics that are happening here. And I'm absolutely underneath the surface here. And not even surface, they're pretty obvious, I would say, especially when we get to the little boy. But I think it's interesting to notice that, this idea of putting into the, into the female's mouth the idea of being trampled and property, it's important here. And there are some very real key hints in this text that we're referring to uh, other larger conversations about derech and about sadeh. Those are both terms that are used to talk about women and purchasing. And so it's important to notice that that's, there's a subtext happening here. Yes, so, Judy. So would, you, would you say that if it was a man, an adult man, that said, what, what, are, you, what, what are you walking across this field? You know, you, you know and you, know, you are yeah. like all the other robbers and, and all that, do you think you know, maybe he would say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I had no idea. Is it because it was a little girl that, that he was yeah. able to be macho about it and, and to dismiss her to some extent? Maybe, but I'll tell you how I read this, I actually see the opposite. I actually think part of why this is so remarkable to him is because this little girl basically smacked him across, not, she didn't actually smack him, but right? But there's actually like a, oh my goodness. I think when it comes out of this person who was supposed to be so, deferential, when a serious critique comes out, I think it shakes him more than if it was a man. He'd be like, no, let me explain to you because actually in this page and da 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 da, -da let me explain to you. I wonder because I think that there's something in that. In other words, when I'm critiqued by an equal, he, it seems like he can't get the message. That's how we begin. No one bested me, meaning I can't. So I, I wonder about whether, whether I could, if, if this person was, I was perceived by me as an equal, I would have felt the sting of the critique as sharply. I wonder, I don't know, it's an interesting question, but I, I wonder about it, or if that would just be, I would just get into fight mode and I would be like, oh yeah, as opposed to this little girl who's supposed to be deferential to me and suddenly she's calling me a robber. And then I walk back into the Josh and I'm like, guys, you would never believe this, but like, I had this moment where this young girl called me a robber and it really made me think, you know? And I wonder about that, you know? I, I, I see that happening here for him, that there's, a, there's an awakening on his part. There's a coming to understand that I don't actually know everything. And when I'm vulnerable, I lean back on what I think I know, but actually it's the wrong move. Actually what I should have done is ask a question. By the time we get to story number three, he actually finally asks a question, which is great. Which way do I go, he says. <laughs> Except that what happens for this poor man? He doesn't bother to listen to the answer. He doesn't listen to the answer or ask a follow-up question. If I didn't understand the riddle, then ask, right? So it's, it's like a really, I really feel for him by this point in the story. <laughs> Mostly because I feel like it's been a long night, like he didn't have any dinner, then he goes on the way, this little girl rebukes him, Nebuch, and then he's like finally on his way home, you know, or to the town he's trying to get to. And he can't get home. I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, it's so poignant, this idea that he tries to get back to the city. I don't know if it's home or if it's back to the city. And he can't get, literally he can't go, he can't get there because he's blocked by vegetation. He's blocked by growth. <laughs> it's like really interesting to me. He's blocked by, right, he cannot get there. Well, there was a hand though, people want someone to say something? No? My only comment on this of all this was, to me personally, the fact that he says little boy, little girl, woman, it, it's not particularly that, I, I think he's only saying I was vested by people that I really thought weren't as learned or as sharp as me. Right, right. And uh, look what there is out there to see. Right, 
Absolutely. And I think what's interesting, my friends, is he's fundamentally changed and transformed by that to the point that I'm willing to walk into my students and tell them these stories. I don't see them as shameful, right? Which I think is really interesting. I'm not ashamed because I didn't really know that I actually could learn from these people who are so marginal to what our project seems to be with, right here inside the Bait Midrash, right? They seem to be such outsiders. And when I come back home, I, guys, you'll never believe what I learned from a little boy. You never believe what I learned from a little girl. You never believe this. Like it's, there's a way in which he really has changed, I feel, by the time we get to the end of these stories. Okay, so let's just go to this question. So what was the incident with the little boy? I was once on a journey when I saw a little boy sitting at a crossroad. I said to him, which road should I take to the city? He says, this one is short but long, and that was long but short. <laughs> I go along the short but long road, and I appear in the town, right? I discover that it was hedged in by gardens and orchards, right? <laughs> I turn back. I say to him, my son, didn't you tell me this road was short? And he says, yeah, but why don't you listen to the end of my sentence? You didn't listen. That's his critique of him. You didn't listen. So it's great you asked a question, but you didn't actually bother to listen to the rest of the answer, okay? But look, 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 then he says, oh, I kissed him on his head and said, oh, right? Happy are you, Israel, your great scholars from your great ones to your young. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I, I do think that's important. I do think it's important in this version of the story that there is no praise for them. And there's no kiss, by the way. Right? So what do you think about this? How do, why do you think we conclude this way? What is this the point? That's the end of the story. What, what's the conclusion? What did he learn? Well, the first one is you need to ask. The second one is you need to ask. That's when you need to ask and also listen. And also listen, right. <laughs> okay. But well, tell me more. Why are these the things, why are these things that I can only learn on the road? Why aren't these stories, tell me. You never encounter these people. Yeah, okay. Rush. And we'll be deferring to him all the time. No mm -hmm. one dares speak to him. Beautiful, like. beautiful. I think that that's so interesting, right? Uh, she seems to know he's a rabbi, but does she know she, he's Yoshua ben Hananiah? Does she know, he, right? I wonder about that also, and this is really, I don't know if anyone else has this experience, but it's really true. Like, you know who you are, but most people who are meeting you on the road don't have a clue who you are, right? Or why you're important or not important, or, you know, like, and, and what does it mean for him? He's like sort of stripped of all those all of the accolades, and he's just a regular person on the road suddenly, and who does he meet, and how does it change him, right? Yeah, they don't care, right. Right, because today you're a guest in my house. I don't really care who you are, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananiah. His comfort zone, everyone knows who he is, and he's not challenged. Right. You're outside of your comfort zone, people don't know who you are, and you're challenged. Right, right. And there is a way, I don't know if anyone else, there is a way in which you actually do get a little bit less intelligent when you're on the road, right? You, you actually feel that way. You're like, I don't really know. How do I turn a knob? I don't, you're so tired. You've been, like, there's, there's certain things, there's really a reality. You're like, oh, short belong. Okay, I'll just go this way. You know, like, I can imagine by this point, he's so exhausted. The fatigue is real, you know? And, and so it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. Like, how am I, how, when I step out of my comfort zone, how am I vulnerable? But also, how does the road beat me down a little bit, right? And I, I, I don't really, it, I think probably if he was in the Mickey Drash and he was short but long, long but short, he wouldn't be like, oh, I don't know what that means. He'd know. He's doing a short but But there's a way in which, actually, when I step out of my comfort zone, I lose some of my own capacities, right? There actually is, it's actually a real thing that's, I think, happening for him that we're seeing here, right? Uh, yeah? In every case, they know something that he doesn't know. Right. 
Right. Fundamentally, right? Yeah, yeah, the effect. We all use GPSs. And we all use Waze, which says, oh, there's a traffic jam and the people yeah. take over the back roads. Yeah. But we're intruding on people's streets and public spaces. Mm -hmm. And there are now cities that are banning this <gasps> and having 10 mile an hour speed limits to stop you from using Waze and going to residential neighborhoods. Really? Wow. <gasps> That's so interesting. I had no idea. Interesting. Very interesting. Wow. I had no idea that, that was happening. Fascinating. Okay, so interesting. Effect. Oh. oh. Why was someone, why couldn't she? Parked? Oh, you're saying that the, the street was clogged? Uh huh. Oh my gosh, that is crazy. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, LA is particularly, yeah, interesting. Okay, my friends, right after these stories over Yeshua, Yeshua Ben Hanan, we have more time, so I want to keep going. Right after these stories, we have one of a very, very famous story in the Talmud. It, it's put in another bracket, but it's exactly right after this. Okay, ready? Here we go. Rabbi Yassi Haglili, you guys with me, source number five? Rabbi Yassi Haglili, have a ka'azil ba'orcha. Okay, again, was walking on his way. Ashkecha libruria. He comes across Bruria. Now, do people, people know who Bruria is? Bruria is one of the only women that is named in the Talmud. She has a name. And she is the wife of Rabbi Meir and is seen to be a tremendous Torah scholar. We have seven or eight stories about her in rabbinic literature. Some are duplicates. And they basically talk about a woman who is extremely knowledgeable. Okay? That is who this character is. So Yassi Haglili meets her on the way. This is the next story in this line, okay? Yoshua tells me these three stories. Woman, little girl, little boy. And then we're told Rabbi Yassi Haglili was once on a journey when he met Bruria. He says to her, Be'ezo derech nelech lelod. Which way shall we go to Lod? By the way, I want you guys to notice, above, it's exactly the same question that Rabbi Yoshua asks. Be'ezo derech nelech Lair, which way do I go to the city? So it's a very similar um, genre of stories of how do I get to the town, okay? <laughs> she says to him, you stupid Galilean. It's called, it's foolish here, it's nicer, but really she says, Galilee Shote, you stupid Galilean. Didn't our rabbis teach, do not speak unnecessarily with a woman? I always love teaching this piece, right? Don't let, right? Don't speak to a woman. Don't have a lot of conversation with her. You should have asked, which to load? Okay, so in other words, instead of four words, which way shall we go? That in English doesn't work. To load, right? Instead of those four words, you should have said, Eze lilod, which to load? With me, guys? Two words. Well, three words in English. Two words in Hebrew. Four words to two words, she says to him. You should, don't you know the law? Don't you know the law that you don't speak to women unnecessarily? You don't add more words, she says to him. Okay, that's the end of the story. That's it. What do you think? Thoughts, comments, reactions? Why does this story happen after the stories we just learned? Why does this story happen on the road? Every area has its own rules. Mm, good, good. And part of what she says to him is, you don't actually know 
the rules of this place, right? You're from the Galil, you're from the north of Israel. We're Lod, which is in the south. You stupid Galilean, you don't know the rules here. Okay, good. Right? She says it very clearly, it's about being a Galilean. She, that's, her critique of him is that he's a Galilean, okay? You don't have the same Torah as us. It's, it's really happening here. And there really was sort of feuding schools in the north and in the south of Israel, okay? So she's basically saying to him, you're an idiot. You didn't know the rules here, and you should have asked the rules, right? Good. What else is she saying to him? What do you think about this character? Well, I think she's incredibly rude. Incredibly rude. Incredibly rude. Good. Probably not a stranger. Fellow rabbi. She's still in What do you mean a fellow rabbi? She's a rabbi, too. As close as we're going to get to a female rabbi in the Talmud is Brewery, right? She's a Torah scholar. In those days? In those days. I'm going to prove it in the next story, which comes right after this. Okay, yeah. Well, I just thought that she was rude. Good. Rude. Excellent. She could have just said to him. <laughs> What's she mad about? She's besting him because she should know this. Good. For sure he should know this. For sure. Like when I was in business, I told my department, pay $100 a word. Beautiful. Very nice, $100 a word, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Do you think she believes in this rule? You think she's being sarcastic? What do you guys think? Good, excellent. Okay, why do you think she's being sarcastic? Because of getting angry. Okay. What? Getting, I mean, she, she, was, she was being sharp. Right. So she actually is not happy with the rule. What, not happy with the rule. Okay, good. And why do you think she believes it? Because that was the way of the, of the place, of, of, the, of her area. So that's what she was accustomed to, and so she believed that that was the universal law. Great. Okay. How many sentences? How many words did she did it take her to say this to him? I just ask. Foolish Galilean, don't you know? Didn't our rabbis teach? Sorry, foolish Galilean. No, you. You foolish Galilean. Didn't our rabbis teach? Do not speak unnecessarily with a woman. You should have asked which to load. So basically, twenty words to critique him for using. Two extra words. Not even four. Four was fine. Two were, of those four were fine. Two extra words. Good, good. Is it okay for her to be talking to him? What is she mad about? Maybe she's mad that he's not following this law. Or what is she mad about? Okay, good. Good, good. There is one way of reading this, that there's actually flirtation happening here, particularly because he says, which way shall we go? The problem I have with that, the only problem, that is like a classic read of this. The problem I have with that is that we have Rabbi Yoshua right above this saying exactly the same language, and I think it's more the royal we. Which way shall we go? He says to the little boy, and he's not taking the little boy with him. So I'm not sure about that we. It's, 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 there's, there definitely is a read like that, and maybe she's saying to him, don't speak with me. You know you're not allowed to talk to me, right? Please don't talk to me, okay? I want to say, she says to him, are you kidding me? I'm Bruria. You know who I am. You know exactly who I am. And what are you asking me for? Directions. directions. <laughs> no, don't ask me for directions. You want to talk to me? Talk about Torah. Don't talk about directions. Right? That's how I read this story. For me, that's, that's the way I understand what's happening here. Oh, we want to, oh, really? So if you're going to do that, then ask as shortly as possible. A's a little load. Right? Then follow. You don't want to talk to me about serious things like Torah because you're so busy observing the rule of don't talk to women 
So then don't ask me about stupid things either. Don't ask me which way to go, right? That's how I read her here, very, very fierce. And the reason why I read her that fiercely, by the way, is because the next, the next story, also her. Look what happens next, okay? Bruria ashgachte lahahu talmida. I want you to know, these are all in order. I'm, I didn't put anything out of order here. Starting from Rabbi Yeshua until here, they're all in order, okay? Bruria ashgachte lahahu talmida dahava kagaris belachisha. Bruria comes upon a student who was learning Torah quietly in a whisper, okay? So instead of learning his Torah out loud, he was learning it quietly. She kicks him. I love it. Bat Shabbat. She literally kicks him. But the, the text says literally she kicks him, guys. Okay? So the first one she calls him a foolish Galilean. The second one she kicks her student. Right? Amra She says to him, Lokach katub. Isn't it written? Ordered in all things and preserved. Im arucha. Now you see she's really a Talmudist. You see that's why I was saying to you she's a rabbi. Right? Im arucha beramach evarim shalcha. If it is ordered and part of your 248 limbs, right? It will be preserved. And if you don't embody the Torah, it will not be. Now, what are we talking about here, guys? This is based, okay, good. So this is based on a rabbinic idea that there are 248 limbs in your body, okay? Uh, and, this is, and that's why we have, by the way, 248 positive commandments. 365 bones, 365 negative commandments, and 248 positive commandments, equaling a total of 613, right? 248 plus 365. I don't know how to do that math, believe me, but I just know it, those two things. Okay, so 248 limbs and 365 bones, and my whole body is basically 613 mitzvot. And she says to him, if you keep the Torah in your body, if you learn how to inhabit the Torah, her part of your body, then it will be kept and preserved, and if not, not. You're gonna forget it. So basically she says to him, you will, you must learn the Torah out loud with a voice, right? She's basically saying to him, you can't just whisper Torah, you have to learn Torah out loud. Torah is something that has to be embodied and part of your life, okay? You don't just pray you daven. Beautiful, right? Exactly. It's part of who you are. But it's very, don't you guys think there's, a, there's an irony here also? That we have a woman. First of all, you notice she's exactly behaving in the same way that a rabbi would in the Talmud. Right? She takes a verse and she interprets it. Right? That's why I was suggesting, right? That, she's, that Yossi Aglili is a colleague. She can quote texts to him. She's, he's not just, right? She's not just a rabbi, right? She, is, she too is part of this rabbinic project. She can quote verses, she can interpret them, she can use them to uh, rebuke <laughs> both colleagues. And here, by the way, I think it's very clear this is her, her student, right? It's not just any student. It's, she comes across her, her student, she sees her student is not learning Torah properly, right? And she basically says to him, you have a, what is she saying to you? You have a? Yeah, you do have an obligation. Excellent, excellent. You have a voice, she says to him. You have a voice. And you have to use your voice. You have to use your voice for Torah. Right? So there's something interesting happening here, my friends. I think source number five, which is the continuation of source number four, is it, it's very interesting to, to have a woman sort of responding to Yoshua. Right? We, in, in source number four, we had these stories of Yoshua wherein he had to leave the Beit Midrash in order to encounter those who are different than him, in order to learn that he needed to 
ask questions, be curious, right? Learn from those who are different than him. Understand that the walls of the Midrash were not enough that kept him in. And then the Talmud goes on to tell me two stories of a woman who is outside, normally outside the Beit Midrash, who actually finds herself in the Beit Midrash. You see that? He had to leave the Beit Midrash to encounter others who are different. And here then we have two stories of a woman who actually takes her place in the Beit Midrash. But her main point is, be careful how you speak. Be careful how you speak. Be careful how you use your voice. Don't use it unnecessarily. Don't use it to talk about stupid, petty things. And, and use it specifically to learn. So I think it's interesting to notice, right, that we, Yoshua encounters those who are outside and normally are not given a voice. And then the Talmud goes on to introduce me to someone who normally doesn't have a voice, speaking about the significance. So it's, so it's like the, the irony and layers here, layer upon layer upon layer of subtext is so deep and important, right? Be careful who you speak with and how you speak. Even, by the way, from someone who seems to be using her speech, as Judy says to us, somewhat negatively. In other words, she, her critique of him is that he should be careful how he speaks, and she speaks to him in this way that is extremely, right, derogatory. On the other hand, we've seen that here now. The Talmud seems to be okay with using your voice to shake someone up. Right? I'm reading about, I'm reading about her, about her, because it's fascinating. Yeah, she's a very fascinating character. Yeah, yeah, she's very fascinating. Really worth looking into. Okay, so my friends, we have 10 minutes left together. So now what we have to do is how does it all end? Okay, we saw the opening Mishnah, and then we're going to look at, this is the last few lines of these pages, okay, which are all about voice, power, education, and the road, okay? We conclude here in source number six, okay? This is how this piece is. So I do want to tell you that four and five, five follows directly from four, but then six is a page and a half later, okay? So we're, it's, not, it's not really so fair. I, we're missing a whole page and a half. Very interesting, extremely fascinating. Really worth looking at, I would tell you, okay? It's all online for free, safariad.org. Keep reading in this. I would go, I really would read from 54A to 55A. Really worth looking at, okay? Fascinating, confusing, complicated, but awesome. So it's all free online in the beautiful Karin Steinzelt's translation. You should go look it up, okay? So, source number six, my friends. Ready? Rav Avdimi Bar Chama Bar Dosa said, what does it mean, this is a quote from Deuteronomy 30.12, she is not in the heavens nor across the sea. Right, guys? The very famous idea, Loba Shamayim the Torah is not in the heavens, right? And not across the sea, right? Because if the Torah would have been in the heavens or across the sea, what would have happened, guys? we would be obligated to go there and pursue it. What is our obligation? To find Torah? Where? Everywhere. That's right. Torah must be found everywhere. Rava said, now listen to this, my friends, and this, I think, is a direct comment, both on Bruria and on Rabbi Yoshua. Rava says, Torah is not found in one who is haughty about it, like the heavens, nor one who is confident about it like the sea. Rabbi Yochanan says, it is not in heaven, Torah is not found in haughty people, and not across the sea, nor in wholesalers who cross the sea or merchants. The end. 
Okay, so what are we learning here? What do these last few lines teach us? It's always funny. I always, I always thought that the line, you know, the, the Torah is not in heaven or across the sea, was meant to say we shouldn't go looking for it. We should find it right where you Yeah. Are. Those other interpretations seem to be missing. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting, actually, because that is the simple understanding of that verse is kiba ficha buvavcha. It's not across the sea. It's not in the heavens. It's in your mouth and in your heart, right? That is exactly what that verse is about, right? Don't last so toe, right? Make sure you understand that you think it's this lofty thing that's so far away from you. It's not. Torah is there with you. It's in you. It's part of you all the time. And it's not, it's not too hard for you. It's not too hard for you. It's not too hard for you. Except what's interesting here, I think reading it in this context is sometimes when Torah is too easy for me, what happens to me? What happens? It gets boring. What else? I get arrogant. When I am not tested, when I am not bested, when I don't ever have to leave my comfort zone, Torah can be something that actually keeps me complacent and makes me arrogant, right? Rabbi Yankos and I were talking about this today earlier, right? How, how Torah can be something that can actually get in the way of our growth. And I think part of what's happening here is that's what Rabbi Yoshua was trying to say. I've been in this baby drash all these years. No one's ever bested me. I was never pushed. It's only because I dafka left the walls of the Midrash. I went out there that I, right, that I encountered those who were different than me, right? That's when I was pushed. But I only was able to see that because, as Gerald said to us, I was not haughty. It was a danger of me being haughty, but I actually encountered these people who were different than me, and I learned that if I'm really going to be a totally, a true Torah, person of Torah, I'm going to be a true student of Torah, then I have to not be haughty. Right? So I think there's something very powerful in this about we have to, there's a power in the road, there's a power in forcing myself to place myself in situations where I will encounter those who are different than me, where I will allow myself to learn their Torah. Not because the Torah is too hard or because it's far away, but because actually what I'm learning is Torah is everywhere if I am willing to seek it out, if I'm willing to listen to little boys and little girls, right? If I'm willing to listen to everyone in my community and really seek out those who are different than me, the Torah that we can create together is something I will never have by myself. I will never learn when people, everyone knows who I am and no one's challenging me and people are speaking to me in the most respectful tones possible. I will never learn. I will never grow. It's only when I'm with people who don't know who I am, who are challenging me and my behaviors, who are asking me to put my words into practice, then, and only then, will I truly be a Torah, right, personality. And I, I think the fact that the Talmud is willing to say this at the conclusion of meeting one of the most important Torah personalities, right, in our history and seeing him transform and also seeing another Torah personality try to teach others the same lesson, right? Then we tell you, don't be haughty. Don't be haughty, right? You have to leave what you know. You have to be willing to make yourself vulnerable and you have to ask questions, right? Because actually you don't know everything even when you think you do, right? You actually don't. And, and that's where the Torah is found, right? I think a very, very beautiful beautiful, uh, powerful message for us. And with that, I'm going to conclude. But I want to hear if anyone has questions, comments, thoughts. What do you guys think? Reactions? Questions. Yeah. Where does, where does uh, Rabbi Yochanan get this whole thing about wholesalers and merchants? Yes, that's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, where does that come from? Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, because, right, because he's saying, who goes on the sea? It's these people. Yeah. But yes, there is a fundamental distrust of merchants that the rabbis have, which is an interest worth talking about and exploring. Maybe, maybe people who travel a lot, they bring back stories. It could be, maybe they would have interesting So in fact, there is a whole genre of rabbis whose job it was, was to go between Eretz Yisrael and Babylonia. They would actually travel back and forth, and they'd say, I'm bringing the Torah of Yochanan, I'm bringing the Torah of Ravah. I'm, they actually did, and they were called the Bnei Nichuta. They Actually, that was their job. I mean, they were merchants, but their job was to bring back and forth. And you, you have all these stories in both, it was fascinating, by the way, is you have all these stories in the Yerushalmi, in the, in the, Babylon, in the Jerusalem Talmud, that tell the story of that day when that rabbi came to town and told us about the Babylonians. And the Babylonians told us, that day when that rabbi went to the Yushami and they didn't trust him, and they didn't listen to him. There's actually like an amazing, there are several stories where you can see the Babylonian slant and the Eretz Yisrael slant. And they're telling the stories in very different ways the day that you know, someone came to town. It's like fascinating, really worth thinking about. But um, yeah, yeah, you're right, 100% happening there. Good, yeah. Too. I mean, I'm thinking of the Aleppo Codex mm. and, and when they were trying to get mm. their, their documents out and the wholesalers and the people who cross the sea, they're not, uh, the merchants, they're not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. There's, There's something there. Happens. Yeah, yeah. Which seems to contradict what we were just saying about learning from everyone, right? So it's a different, yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Yeah, it's true, it's true, it's a good point. Yafet. Other thoughts? Okay, guys, thank you so much. It was such an honor and pleasure to learn with you. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.